welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced and presented by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nations land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. This week on Women on the Line, we're going to be tackling the challenging topic of sexual harassment and harm in the workplace with a focus on the Australian music industry and on some of the legal barriers to redress for people who have experienced these harms, including the impact of non-disclosure agreements and defamation law. This is a sensitive area of discussion, and it may be distressing for some listeners. Today's interviews won't be going into detail about specific incidents of harassment and harm, but if needed, you can call Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or you can call 1-800-RESPECT, that's 1-800-737-732, for support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Listeners in the music industry or arts can also call Support Act's Wellbeing Helpline 24-7 on 1-800-959-500. That's 1-800-959-500. Alternatively, you may wish to skip this week's show and tune back in in about half an hour. Sexual harassment and harm are alarmingly rife in Australian workplaces, with Safe Work Australia reporting in January that one in three, or 33% of people, have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace in the past five years. The persistence of gender discrimination as a cultural norm in Australia has supported the cultivation of a culture of silence around these issues, which has hampered efforts towards accountability and justice. In today's episode, we hear first from Anne Jacobs, the National Welfare Manager at Australia's music industry charity Support Act, to talk about sexual harassment and harm in the context of the Australian music industry. This conversation happens in the wake of the release of a report titled Raising Their Voices, which presents the findings of an independent review into sexual harm, sexual harassment, and systemic discrimination in the Australian contemporary music industry, as well as a list of key recommendations for regulatory and cultural changes. Later, I'm joined by Director of the University of New South Wales Kingsford Legal Centre, Emma Gollidge, who unpacks some of the barriers to accountability and transparency that are faced by people who've experienced sexual harassment in the workplace with a focus on non-disclosure agreements. Let's go to that interview with Anne now. So I thought we could maybe start off by talking about the genesis of this national music industry review that ended up culminating in the recently released Raising Their Voices report. What led to this national call for change around sexual harm, sexual harassment, and systemic discrimination in the industry? I'm wondering what the tipping point was here and whether any kind of similar reviews or initiatives have happened in the past or whether this is the first of its kind. So I think the tipping point has really been over the past few years, there's been some very public disclosures, some call-outs, public reports, uh, Instagram posts and podcasts that have really drawn this issue that's happening within the music industry into the public sphere. I feel like there's been a bit of a mentality about, you know, everyone knows about these issues happening, you know, we've experienced it as whether we're in the industry or as punters or things like that but nothing's really been done about them. There's not really been a lot of um, industry action taken to to make any changes. So a meeting was held uh, in March last year with a group of people from the industry to start a discussion about how to create cultural change. 
Support Act was at that meeting, so myself and Carissa Benjamin, our First Nations Community Engagement Social Worker, a working group was formed out of that and really led to engaging consultants to start the process of this review, you know, really to, to undertake a process of hearing stories from people working within the industry, to undertake some research, to get a more comprehensive view of the issue, um, how widespread the issue has been, and look at other factors that, that are contributing to the, to the issue of um, sexual harm and discrimination within the industry and get, make some clear recommendations um, to, to help us all move forward and implement this cultural change. I'd just like to quickly take time to acknowledge everyone who participated in the industry review and told their stories because that's a very challenging thing to do and also just acknowledge those people who, for whatever reason, were unable to um, tell their stories or participate in that review as well. Yeah, definitely, because, of course, it must be so, you know, re-traumatising and challenging in a sense for people to even engage to tell their stories and I think part of the cyclical nature of these concerns really comes to the fore when you look at uh, the lack of faith in in reporting systems and in systems for redress and you know accountability that people have been able to access so I just wanted to go through some of the figures from the report. So there are some really sobering figures with survey findings showing that at some point in their career in the contemporary music industry, 55% of survey participants experienced some form of workplace sexual harassment. This was 72% of women and 39% of men, but 85% of gender diverse participants. And yet out of these, only 3% of survey participants ended up making a formal report. And there are similar figures and a similar proportion of people making a report for experiencing bullying in the workplace. So why is it the case that so few people who have experienced sexual harm or bullying in the Australian music industry are reporting this? And what does this tell us about some of those avenues for reporting and support? Look, I think there are a number of factors here. And I think some of these are true for the general population as well. But you know, so not just within the industry, but I think there's significant factors within our industry that mean that people don't report. I think we we mentioned um, just before the telling and retelling of stories, the re-traumatising every time you tell your story. And unfortunately, that's, there's still a lot of stigma and shame attached to these experiences. I think, you know, in the public arena, we see that seeking justice and accountability through a criminal system or any reporting system. It often feels like the victim survivor is on trial rather than the perpetrator. So if we see within, you know, within the media these um, trials happening, you know, I'm sure we can think of some recent ones, it, it's not really uh, enticing or, you know, encouraging uh, for people to report, to make those reports. I think, you know, fear plays such a big part in decisions to disclose. And I think within the industry, this is really significant, you know, fear of retribution, um, obviously, from perpetrators or, or other people connected to them. But I think as this review shows, fear of impacts on career prospects is a huge issue, you know, especially in an industry where competition, commercial gain is, is a real factor. I think people work so hard to make space for themselves already. And, you know, that's obviously increased with First Nations people, with people of colour, gender diverse people and people with disabilities who already experience barriers to participation. Um, and then to then report when something's happened is going to jeopardise any gains you've already worked so hard for. I think, you know, some of the other results are that 21% of people believe that reporting would have negative impacts on their career and 44% thought that it just wouldn't make a difference anyway. So, you know, there's very little confidence in a reporting structure and any accountability for perpetrators. I think one of the other factors that's quite unique to the industry is the 
is, is the structure of the industry. You know, there's a lot of big companies, but there's also a lot of sole traders. There's a lot of small businesses. There's a lot of freelance workers, sort of contractors. So the just really dispersed nature of the industry um, probably makes it really challenging for people to know how or where to report these issues because there's not those traditional, you know, sort of more formal reporting systems. But I think, you know, even with those formal reporting systems, you know, the review showed that, that many people reporting were dissatisfied with the with the results anyway. So I think there's a lot of factors that need addressing um, within, you know, obviously the general the general arena as well, but specifically within the music industry. Yeah, of course. And and drawing it back to the general sort of social issues that the music industry uh, sits within, you know, it's not outside of those broader concerns of sexual harassment, of bullying, um, and of gendered violence and gendered harm that, you know, operate across society more broadly. But as you've mentioned, there are some specific complexities to the way that the music industry operates. And I think that the pandemic's still going, but it has had a really big impact on the music industry and people have been scrambling for opportunities and, you know, seeing this report come out, we really need to make sure that when people are trying to get their careers back off the ground, that they don't face some of these uh, same structural barriers. So uh, with that in mind, the report laid out a list of 17 recommendations for change in the music industry to address some of the issues. And this included the establishment of a contemporary music industry cultural reform council. So in your view, what are some of the most important and urgent recommendations? And then how do you think major players within the industry will actually be able to ensure that tangible action is taken on some of the concerns we've discussed? So um, I think one of the most important things and, and support active, being part of this is accepting the recommendations as per the joint um, statement that's been released by um, uh, some of the leaders within the industry, which I, I absolutely think is the first and most important recommendation. Um, you know, you have to acknowledge there's an issue and apologise and make commitment to, to taking further action. So I think that's, you know, just I'm really pleased to see that that's already been done. One of the first things that Support Act has done as leaders in mental health and workplace wellbeing space is to put together minimum standards for a mentally healthy workplace, which have been created to sort of support the music um, business community in implementing standards that are becoming uniform across the Australian business landscape. So it's not a code of conduct that's been, that's been recommended, but it goes some way to addressing that recommendation within the review. So they're voluntary standards and, and they're self-regulating, you know, recognising that creating mentally healthy workspaces um, takes time, requires ongoing attention, and that different workplaces have different needs, especially when talking about the dispersed nature of the industry with bigger companies, smaller companies, contractors, et cetera. So I think there's some some really important recommendations and steps forward that we've sort of been um, working on already. I think ensuring tangible action is taken, that accountability piece is really important. And I think probably, a, you know, having some sort of um, body to really help keep people moving forward, keep people accountable, um, I think is is really important. Yeah, and having, I guess, a space, especially, uh, as you've mentioned, the diversity of you know, size of organization from people working as freelancers to really large uh, companies in the music industry, uh, being able to have an independent organization that people can go to and raise their concerns with uh, that are sort of governed by the standards that are set out in those recommendations, I think would be really crucial. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to speak to in the recommendations from the review? I think it, the review echoed a lot of the things that or some of the things that came up in regards to uh, mental health and wellbeing within the industry that Support Act undertook some research earlier in the year. And 
that that result showed about 65% of participants had very high or high or very high levels of psychological distress in the industry, which is more than four times that of the general population. And 95% of people said they didn't feel safe at work. So given these findings from the Support Act research, as well as um, this really comprehensive music industry review, I think that Support Act's got a real role to play within the um, addressing some of these concerns. And we've also sort of been doing some of those things already in the work that we do. I think that mirrors the, the um, recommendation within the review about education and training. And I think Support Act's got a real role here. You know, we're already doing a lot of things such as um, access all areas training, like ethical bystander training. We're doing mental health first aid and First Nations um, mental health first aid. We're doing suicide prevention training. We have a First Nations strategic plan, which was developed by our First Nations worker, Carissa Benjamin. Um, That was in consultation with First Nations elders and community members. We have the wellbeing helpline, and I think it was about last year. Don't quote me on the time frame, but um, we we um, implemented the sexual health and safety support line, so people can call and speak to a counsellor about these specific issues. And I think the other thing, and I'm going to champion this because this is this is my role, um, is within the social work team. We we um, have been providing crisis relief grants for you know the duration of support act and more so recently around covid but it's not just financial relief we provide we really look at um, a person holistically and talk to them about other issues that are occurring within their within their lives and talk to them about other areas of support that they may be able to access so there's a whole lot happening here and it's exciting and you know hopeful to be to be working on these things You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station with me, Priya. I just spoke with Anne Jacobs, the National Welfare Manager of Support Act, who joined me to discuss the Raising Their Voices report, which details the findings of a review into sexual harassment and harm in the Australian music industry, as well as some avenues for change. I'm now joined by Emma Gollidge. Director of the Kingsford Legal Centre at the University of New South Wales to get some further insights into barriers to justice for people who have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, with a focus on the impacts of non-disclosure agreements. Maybe we can start off by hearing a bit about the prevalence of sexual harassment in Australian workplaces, because we know both anecdotally and through research by the Australian Human Rights Commission, Safe Work Australia, and a whole range of other non-government organizations, that sexual harassment in the workplace is unacceptably widespread. Uh, So could you speak to some of the systemic concerns that are at play here, both in terms of this type of harm and also the way that it's commonly handled? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, look, we don't really know the level and prevalence of sexual harassment in Australia, except to say the Sex Discrimination um, Commissioner found it to be endemic. And by all kind of survey results, it's very, very high. It's definitely very high for Australian women. Um, In some recent surveys, you know, almost two in five women said that they had experienced sexual harassment. And it's a widespread workplace issue, you know, with about 33% of people is a commonly used figure having experience some form of sexual harassment. But really, the reality is we don't know. And so we really have a long way to go in terms of kind of removing sexual harassment from employment and workplace situations. There's definitely some industries and settings that are riskier than others, and some industries and settings where it's actually commonplace. And so I guess I would also say, 
We know it's dangerously high. We know it affects some groups differently and you're more likely to experience sexual harassment if you experience other types of discrimination. So I think we should be really concerned about that. But also we don't really have a good overview about what happens when people experience sexual harassment and sort of have transparency around that. So I think you know, for a lot of women, that's a concern going into workplaces that we might know if we're going into an unsafe workplace that has a lot of accidents or has a poor work health and safety record, but we won't necessarily know if this is a workplace that has a lot of sexual harassment problems. And I think that's really key, you know, in terms of us addressing and preventing sexual harassment. In terms of the systemic issues, you know, this is a form of gender inequality. It it impedes women's participation in the workforce. And we have to look at all the barriers to gender equality in the workplace, look at our diversity of our workplaces and recognise that, you know, it it is an abuse of power and it is a, a form of violence against women. So we need to approach it in the same way that we approach other forms of unacceptable violence. And all the things that, you know, in terms of prevention and elimination, it's a very complex process that we need to recognise has different kind of approaches in different types of settings. I think part of the Respect at Work report is that we do sort of need to have an owning up that we have accepted sexual harassment and we have ingrained young people to think that sexual harassment is normal and normalised and particularly women have been told for many years to put up with sexist behaviour in workplaces and things like that. And so there's a bigger, you know, there's legislative and legal responses, but there's a bigger kind of cultural conversation we need to have around sexual harassment, particularly at the prevention stage, because we know that it's extremely damaging to have sexual harassment happen to you when you're extremely young or in your first workplace setting, because it's so debilitating and impacts on you for the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the sort of cultural dimension is so important here because this isn't uh, something that's restricted within workplaces. It's a whole system. Now, I wanted to get into some of the specifics about how people can actually address this, but also some of the barriers to uh, accessing I guess, redress for sexual harassment and harm. And I know you've spoken previously about concerns with Australia's system of non-disclosure agreements and the way this operates to actually reproduce harmful behavior through protecting serial sexual harassers. So can you tell our listeners a bit about how NDAs work both within and across organizations to undermine individuals' access to justice? You know, the legal system in Australia really does rely on NDAs in a whole range of areas and sexual harassment is also one of those areas. So from our perspective, we weren't shocked. We had seen it as a problem for a really long time. You know, NDAs are really just basically a contract that you, if you have a claim against someone, you know, if you say that you've got a sexual harassment matter or any type of workplace dispute, you might at the end of a process agree to settle the matter. And it's usually through what's called an NDA. And in Australia, it's almost always on a confidential basis. And so what happens in the sexual harassment realm in particular is that the person who's experienced the sexual harassment is not able to speak about it. And also there's no kind of organisational transparency or acknowledgement that it has happened. And because of that, our system has become very individual complaints-based focus, you know, and so it's about individuals having problems with individuals and not realising actually I'm the 17th person that this person's done this to. And organisations really having a culture of instead of saying, okay, we're going to be proactive and we're going to be transparent and show how we're dealing with this, it's created a bit of a cover-up culture. And so the things I would say is that, you know, almost always when we speak um, to people who've experienced sexual harassment, we talk about what's an outcome that they want. 
And it's usually that it doesn't happen to somebody else because they recognize the really harmful impact. And yet, that is the one area that is really almost impossible to negotiate. And if we think about the disparity in power that people have in terms of negotiating NDAs, usually against an employer who is better resourced than you, and even when you've got a legal centre like my legal centre on in your corner, it's very hard for us to get out of an NDA. We spend lots of time arguing about whether our client can talk to their partner or their counsellor or can disclose the behaviour to a professional. And so... There is a bit of a concern that we are undertaking reform in terms of sexual harassment, but NDAs remain a really big issue. And unless we kind of identify that people who experience sexual harassment do not have enough power within that negotiation to say, I don't want to sign an NDA that covers up this behaviour, we're really not going to get full transparency, I don't think. I was also uh, hoping that we could just briefly discuss how these might relate to broader legal issues such as defamation law in Australia and the impacts that potential allegations of defamation have on individuals who've been subjected to sexual harassment in the workplace, actually speaking up in a public forum, particularly in cases where these internal mechanisms uh, have been exhausted with no result. Yeah, there has been some really unfortunate high-profile cases in the defamation realm around sexual harassment. And what's been really noticeable is how disempowering it has been to the person who's experienced sexual harassment. And defamation law in Australia is incredibly powerful. And so it has a real silencing effect on people who've experienced sexual harassment. And for people that have experienced sexual harassment against people with money or who are high-profile, it has even more of a chilling effect. So, you know, I'm not a defamation lawyer. I'm a kind a sexual harassment lawyer, but we have said there needs to be better protection of people who speak out in defamation proceedings about their experience. But we also need to think about the ways in which defamation proceedings have been used against people who've experienced sexual harassment and how does it interlink with this You know, I really feel that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's report that dropped on us just before the pandemic said we really need to change the way we talk about sexual harassment and we need to end a culture of silence, you know. And so I think a bigger kind of discussion is thinking about how defamation proceedings have also have an impact on people's ability to speak about their experiences. I thought we could turn to the question of the intersection between the nature of someone's employment and issues of sexual harassment in the workplace, because I'm wondering how some of the concerns we've talked about specifically affect people who work as freelancers or independent contractors, because there's obviously some extra concerns here about the availability of workplace protections against sexual harassment as they relate to job security for gig workers. Yeah, look, if you have any type of precarious employment, you will really have to weigh up quite seriously whether you raise a sexual harassment allegation and you know there will be some elements that people in positions of power will exploit that position and actually target people who are extremely vulnerable in terms of that work so it is very very difficult you know where there is no security of employment you know those people that rely on being reviewed well working well working to tight deadlines but also who are casuals or who are you know don't have that continuity of service 
one of the things we're really thinking about is people who work in different types of workplace settings that you might not be being harassed by someone employed by the same person as you. It might be the security guard at a festival. It actually might be a person attending a festival. So we need to have protection for people working in a whole range of different contexts. And we can't have people kind of, you know, we've had this whole issue in the gig economy around, you know, we're not responsible for this worker. They're just a contractor. We're, we're kind of stepping away. And we need to be very careful that that does not happen in this domain and that employers have positive obligations. You know, the reality for us in terms of a lot of people that we see is that they only raise allegations of sexual harassment that have really been going on for a long time when they lose employment, you know, and that sort of economy is really been battered by COVID and we're living in a very kind of financially insecure world. For some people, it's a choice about how much do I, you know, put up with, I really need this work, I need this contract, I need the word of mouth versus, you know, how much actually am I able to endure? And so it's a very, very difficult situation for many people because our our whole conceptualising sometimes of workplaces are, you know, someone who works in a nice big hierarchical organisation and there's a boss and there's another boss and there's an HR department. The real challenge for us is thinking about all those real complex workplaces that don't fit that mould. Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, made 55 recommendations for changes. Not all of those are kind of federal government legislative changes, but many are significant. And she identified quite a lot of, I guess, legal loopholes or areas for strengthening. Probably the most important one is this idea of positive obligations. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about what's the responsibility of the individual? What can the individual do if they're trying to, if they're experiencing sexual harassment? And very much our system at the moment is an individual complaints-based system. It doesn't put very much onus on the employer to kind of deal and have a positive, what we would call a positive obligation or a positive duty to eradicate sexual harassment. So that's the really big movement and hopefully the big cultural shift that will happen in workplaces. And, you know, that's that's due to be, um, that bill's due to be in- introduced into parliament. There's also going to be increased protection and trying to capture a range of workplaces, thinking about um, workplaces that are hostile you know, hostile workplaces to women and also trying to get better protection against those kind of um, difficult situations where you might have a customer or a client that harasses you. So looking at, you know, all the different ways in work you can be harassed, but definitely positive obligations is really the big one. Um, So I think that's the real positive change. I think, you know, kind of the proof will be in the pudding, you know, what does it look like? How does it operate? And I think with everything, we need to actively review how it's going and whether it's actually making the change that we want it to do because we can't really afford to get it wrong. That's all we've got time for today on Women on the Line. You just heard Emma Gollidge, Director of the Kingsford Legal Centre, discussing some of the institutional barriers faced by people who have experienced sexual harm or harassment in the workplace. And earlier, we heard from Anne Jacobs, National Welfare Manager at Support Act, who spoke with us about the Raising Their Voices report on sexual harassment and harm in the Australian contemporary music industry. Today's show covered some sensitive topics, and if you wish to speak to someone about this, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or 1-800-RESPECT, that's 1-800-737-732, for support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In addition, listeners in the music industry or arts can also ring Support Act's Wellbeing Helpline 24-7 on 1-800-959-500. 
Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on unceded Kulin Nations land. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Our show's theme music is by Ripley Kavara, and past programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.